0: One, two, three, four, 2
1: Welcome to Me and the Geek. I'm me, Joel Sharpton. You can find me at joelsharpton.com on Twitter at The Rogues Life, or you can just come back here every week for a, a new conversation with a different geek. This week is another one of our live summer series. We've been uh, doing live interviews all summer long at Louisiana Tech University, specifically on Stone Theater Stage. And it's been a great experience. It really has been. I want to say thank you to Mark Gwynn and the rest of the staff and faculty at Louisiana Tech University, especially their Department of Theater, for making that possible. We are hopeful to do more of these in the future. Next summer, we've got even bigger plans, as a matter of fact, and hopefully I'll be able to tell you more about that uh, soon here on the show. Uh, We do have one more event coming up. Uh, We've added a final event for the summer.
0: These fingers crossed, paprika burgers.
1: Big day today. Jamie gets
0: his exam results. I hope he's done okay. He's worked so hard. So I'm making my paprika burgers for when he gets home. They were lucky last time. I add red onion and paprika to the mince. Then I top with jalapenos. Well?
1: Make your own burgers with our Tesco finest Aberdeen Angus beef. Food Love Stories, brought to you by Tesco. It's going to be August 13th, so as you're listening to this, you've still got time. Uh, come and join us uh, at uh, Stone Theater, 7.30 uh, Thursday evening, August 13th, and uh, admission is free for an evening of theater and music as well as a live podcast there as I interview Lawrence Gibbs, uh, one of the faculty members from the School of Performing Arts in the music department. This week's conversation, though, is from our last live event, and the subject of the interview was Dr. Kenneth Robbins. He's the former Director of the School of Performing Arts, uh, preceding Mark Gwyn in that job who you 've already heard uh, a couple of interviews with here on the show. Uh, but Dr. Kenneth Robbins is uh, well he meant a lot to me during my time at Louisiana Tech. Uh, he helped me focus a little bit on my writing and uh, on the idea of directing, uh, which I did a little bit of in my undergraduate work and and I hope to do more of someday. He is a wonderful director and a a pretty good writer in his own right. He's a novelist and a playwright and a nice fellow and an interesting interview as well. So I hope you enjoy it as we are joined by Dr. Kenneth Robbins live on the stage at Stone Theatre on Louisiana Tech University's campus for me and the geek. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, live from the Arthur W. Stone Theatre stage, Streaming out across the internet it's at www.wwltac.com. Me and the geek with Joel Sharpton and Joel Sharpton's guest, Dr. Kenneth Robbins. You're me, Dr. Robbins. <laughs> um, first of all, before we get started in earnest with Dr. Robbins tonight, and thank you for joining me, Dr. Robbins. I, I want to say thank you to Mark Quinn for putting this on. I, I bothered him. A year ago, I think we started talking about a year ago, about doing some live events like this. I've been doing podcasts for almost, well, for just over three years now. And that's an internet radio show is what that amounts to. You can subscribe to it and you can get it once a week or so. I love it. I feel like it's an intimate art form. It comes right into your ears or it comes into your car or it comes into your shower or wherever you're listening to these things. And I think that it allows for a more open and productive conversation than a lot of other media does. That's the reason why I dig it. I've been wanting to do it live, and Mark gave me a space to do it, and I can't tell him thank you enough. Thank you so much for for putting on these little shows so that we can do this. Thank you, Dr. Robbins, for taking part, for for sitting in the hot seat. Uh, I had the good fortune to talk to Mark Gwynn. I talked to Paul Crook at our last event. And Paul pointed out at the last event, just as he was about to leave the stage, that he and I have known each other 10 years now. This summer, as a matter of fact, marks 10 years. And we met, uh, if you weren't here last week, Paul pointed out that he and I met while we were already in rehearsals for a show, for one of your shows, as a matter of fact. You contacted me in the summer and said, I'm gonna stage this play, Atomic Field, and there's a part for you if you are interested. We're gonna bring in a new professor to play the father, and, and you'll play the son. A combative father-son relationship a little bit, uh, an aging World War II veteran. Uh, and the son, a, a college professor, trying to discover exactly what it was that his father was part of. Right. How much of you and your father were in that play? Well, I have to admit, it was wonderful getting the chance to see you perform me. Uh, that's, I think that's even the way that you that you pitched it to me. And how can you turn that down? When a playwright calls you and says, would you like to play me in a show that I'm writing, you assume that you're going to get all the best lines, right? Well, you did no, I didn't.
0: All the, all the good stuff went to fall. Yes. No, first of all, thank you for this opportunity. And it's, it's so nice, actually, to be part of a program <coughs> where I get to be on the stage following the, the work of a former student, uh, Kyle. And congratulations, Kyle, on all your successes as you move forward. And also, as a member of the faculty, that I had the pleasure of hiring. So it it's great to, to be on the same stage with you. Uh, Gwen, who is um, a remarkable resource, in with you. Because not only was it with Atomic Field, but <clears throat> before that, it was in a very special play me called Master Harold and the Boys, and Joel played Master Harold. And that was a very. high on <laughs> my resume. Anytime you get a title role, you've got to put it up there. Absolutely. It's a, a remarkable opportunity for us because it was the, I think, the only time that we've worked collectively with Grambling. Uh, departments here and there, mm-hmm. and with uh, two members of the student body for Grambling and you representing Tech, and doing the play originally there for three nights, and then coming here and playing again for three nights. It was really quite extraordinary experience, and, and I thank you for that. And then, of course, uh, another most more recent, but a little bit in my past, when you got to play Laser Wolf in Fiddler on the group. so it's great to be on the stage I appreciate it. And uh, back to atomic field. Yes. That was that was a work of, of uh, commitment on my part because it started <clears throat> with a way to commemorate the fact that we as a people, not just Americans, but we as a human race have uh, been fortunate enough, enough not to use atomic weaponry for of years. And this year, 2015, August 6th, will be the 70th year with E without using uh, atomic weapons against uh, the city population. So I'm very proud of that. I'd like to draw attention to that because I do think it speaks clearly to the potential that the race has <coughs> of uh, being able to avoid uh, Armageddon.
1: Uh, or, or to even to step back. Yes. You know, you, you the cat was out of the bag. We, we are aware of what we are capable of, and in fact, we haven't stopped the progress on those capabilities, we've advanced them. The nuclear weapons that we have now are multiples, hundreds of multiples, of the destructive capability of the ones that we actually have. exploded. And yet you're right, 70 years, that, that, that's been back in the back. Yes. And only
0: once, oh no, I'm sorry, it's twice have nuclear weapons been used against the population. And those
1: were in 1945, August 6, and August So it was more than, atomic field specifically, it was more about you uh, tackling the subject and less about a personal drama or a personal... No, it's actually a combination
0: of the two because it was about my father and his experiences. I was not aware that my father had been a participant in, in that event until after he was already in grade. And, uh, and so it became a personal what, uh, quest on no, my part to find out what did he experience, how did he experience it. And what value did that experience hold for me? or for? And, <clears throat> oh, by the way, if anyone is interested, the play is available online. Uh, <laughs> not as a production, but as that's a, that's a text.
1: It's a good play. Yeah, I like it. Um, but of course, I'm prejudiced. Uh, let's talk. Let's focus there on your family a little bit. You know, uh, as, as David Copperfield starts I am born and I grow up. Um, where. What was your art exposure like as a child in your family? None.
0: None. Well, oh, music. I was I'm just saying, for you, family yeah. music well, My family was very
1: deeply involved
0: with, uh, with Christian music, with gospel music, and uh, my mother and father were both members of the uh, gospel quartet. And so I was involved with music from
1: all oh, else. I, was, I can't remember not being involved with music. So once you began to pursue the theater in specific but writing, uh, in general and, 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 and this academic pursuit, was there support from the family? Uh, or did, was it just misunderstanding? <laughs> I remember the first play I directed, my mother came to see it.
0: It was a production, believe it or not, I was a college senior directing the production of West Side Story. it's <laughs> stupid. Uh, but, but anyway, so my mother came to see it. And uh, afterwards, uh, she's from Georgia, keep that in mind. She says, oh, son, it was so good. But what did you do? I couldn't tell her what I had done, because I didn't know oh, it. I oh, didn't right. know the words to tell her what I had done as the director of the production. It was foolish, but I can't remember only one time my father ever having anything to say about my work in the theater. That's when, when I was in college, playing a drunken, sex maniac professor, <laughs> uh, having never had a drink in my life. But he was really concerned. I convinced him that I was a drunken sex man, and he was really worried about my, my future.
1: I you had taken this <laughs> moment I'm like, to hell or the hell. The hell, the hell? <laughs> um, do you think that you continued to chase their support, or were you at peace with the idea that it wasn't really for them? Oh, I remember when I was in
0: college and I came home, I was a music minister At the time, I was going to become a music minister
1: in the Baptist Church. And uh, I have. What I've, I just I had an image of that uh, you now as a music minister, you know, First Baptist Elmwood or whatever. I do anyway. Yeah. You know, sorry. So I, I came home. I had found my way into the theater while I was in
0: graduate school. And the interval between my junior, singer, sorry, sophomore and junior year, I told my father I would changed my major. Really? Yes, sir. I'm going to major in. I can even say the word my father's presence. I finally said, speech. And he understood what I meant. He took his billfold out of his pocket, gave me a $10 bill, and said, that's it. Don't come back anymore. And you know he meant it? It was a a door that suddenly came open, and I realized either I'm serious or I'm not. And it made me realize at that point that I had no choice but to be serious to
1: make this up. Trying to think of the exact quote, I just heard it today. Um, but, but talking about the the fact that you are only at your most successful when you are at your most desperate. Not every success story obviously is this way, but many. You can look at many people and you and you think uh, Jim Carrey, the actor Jim Carrey, is a good one. Uh, in 1985, he was effectively broke. He'd been turned down a million times. He wrote himself a check. He pulled a check out of his checkbook. He wrote himself a check for ten million dollars for acting services rendered. He put it in his wallet and carried it around. And in 1994, he cashed a check from a movie studio for Dumb and Dumber for ten million dollars. So he beat his he beat his deadline just barely. But to do it. But it was the it was the desperation yeah. to get there. It was the, the he was hungry, literally hungry. Do you think that that's required? Was it necessary for you that they sort of shove you out and it was sink or swim? In its own way, but on the other hand, um, I was pretty determined at the
0: time, and uh, it struck me as being an appropriate choice at the
1: time. And I've never doubted it, so I, I don't have the check I wrote to myself with me. <laughs> tomorrow, so. Was it was it always writing and directing for you? It was the reverse. directing first. And then that brought an interest in the written work. Well, uh, I shouldn't say that. Um, I'm, I'm interested in storytelling, mm. and,
0: uh, and they connect. But there is an interesting problem with being a director who is a writer, is that the director, who is a writer, should not direct his own works, mm. simply because you don't know who's making the mistakes. Am I good enough uh-huh. as a director, or is it the writer is the mistake, and I'm not about to admit as a writer this. Is. I'm not about to admit, this this director, so it's a real problem. Solving problems as a director
1: who's written his own words is not easy. Um, we, we experienced that. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. Yes, that's, yes. 23 published plays, four novels, four Christmas story collections. Um, do you have a favorite work? Do you have a favorite baby? <laughs> They're all my babies.
0: They're all my children, and um, actually my, my favorite children are. Are, you re- are your actual children Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but they're all, they're all very special to me. In fact, I'm rather proud of this. I'm not going to announce this here. No. Uh, September 10th through the 12th, the uh, world premiere will be done in Alexandria by the Spectral Sisters. It's a community theater organization that every year gives a, a festival of new works. And uh, I feel very fortunate that one of my plays has been selected for this event. That's so, awesome. awesome. That's so great. when I play, which I feel very proud of, you. Uh, what's the
1: title? It's called Creeping Charlie. Creeping Charlie. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to um uh, Let's talk about ten-minute plays for a second. This is something that I know you're very passionate about. Um, they're very popular right now. It seems to be uh, not just popular, but it seems to be a useful medium right now for the theater. That's true. That that's a cheap way to put it. It is. It's, it's, it's a
0: it's a non-committal way. To do also it's a good way for a beginning writer to break in and, and get their writing legs underneath them so to speak because there's a greater chance that if you're a new writer to get a ten-minute play done with voices in oral space than it is to get a
1: two and a half hour long play that has not yet been tested uh, now you took this great idea of the 10 minute play that's so easy to mount and you of course turned that into a whole evening of theater which is now hard to mount uh, yes. Um, and the other thing, too, is that I discovered
0: by doing two of the two-minute plays here is that I thought they were standalone, but they, 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 they lose do, something they, in the... Yeah,
1: they need each other in order to have resonance. Do you think that there? is it about that medium other than the... What is it about the medium for a playwright? I know what it is about uh, for a production group, but what is it about the medium for a playwright that is a playwright? It's a it's appealing thing, but it's also
0: practical. Uh, It's easier to write a sonnet than it is to write a long narrative poem. Uh, It's easier to write a timid play than it is to write a line or a full evening. And because of that, it's not as daunting a task for writers, like in college here. It's a less daunting task for a writer to sit down and say, yes, I can write a timid play. And oftentimes they can write it in one sitting. They come back to it the next day or however. but when you write a point play it takes months so that I started on this day and I ended on this day well, I'm a different person on this day than I was when I wrote this. Yeah, I could start back over again yeah. I've got a different story to tell. So with a 10 minute play it's much more practical as well as
1: useful uh, mechanism I think. Um, connected as I am to, to new media I, I think a lot about what's happening on the web and while I'm involved in long-form long uh, audio specifically, you know, I, my shows are generally 30 to 45 minutes, an hour sometimes. What seems to be exploding is, is web video. I mean, YouTube is obviously the, the most obvious example of this, but Facebook, every every website that you can think of is trying to get into the video space. Is there, from, from the statistics that I've looked at, the, the views drop off dramatically, I mean drastically, at the four-minute mark. That's that's the target that these popular viral video makers are are looking at. Is there is there anything there for a burgeoning playwright? Absolutely. Is there is there a story to be told in four minutes? Absolutely. Two minutes. There there are playwriting contests right now that do it in one sentence.
0: Really? Play on one, yes. I mean, it isn't. The idea is that if you write this particular play, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it to find its core. And then start building it there, and so that's really what they've done. They're starting from the reductive and moving to the broad, rather than
1: doing broad and producing it and starting. What about? Are we? Is there something to be said for us as creators, for us as as our artists, that we should be training the audience to handle longer form? I mean, is it? Are we doing ourselves a disservice by producing short content? Like I think it's fascinating to look at the history of film, particularly because that's an accessible
0: item. And uh, recently I've been looking and watching a lot of 1950 films, and for the most part, they're an hour and a half. And then, for some reason, it came into vogue, and I think it's because of 6 Leader Mill, during the 60s and 70s. If it wasn't two and a half hours long, it wasn't worth your time. So much so that you have actually have to have an intermission in, huh. in the middle of some of these films. But today, because of our preparation as a society, we are reducing it, once again, back down to not just an hour and a half, but look at Master Harold and Boris. It was an hour long, and one act. Look at doubt, an hour long. And it doesn't need to be long. And in fact, even at an hour, they be testing the
1: staying power of the government. Look at the transition, um, I mean, if you think a lot of high level artistic narrative that's happening right now. It's not happening that much on the silver screen. It's happening on television. And again for that same current medium, I can take it to the hour of story. Yes. Uh, get in and out and my audience can do other things. It's actually best than that. It's 46 minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unless you're on no, it's
0: less than that cable. Yes. And uh, it's fascinating for me to see how television has now been replaced by other things. Mm. Screen uh, I find I have found a number of little, 10 minute long films that are absolutely fascinating. And I try to share them sometimes with students and if the opportunity to present itself, it's worthwhile. But the storytelling has been collapsed so much so that now, some of these timid plays are just as valid, timid uh, films, films are just as valid as the two and a half hour long album.
1: And as much to say and as much to unpack and as much to, about the human experience. Um, Let's stick with the short form a little bit, but, but switch media. Let's go back to the Christmas Story collections. You edited these with your wife, yes. uh, Dr. Dorothy Robbins, in, in the house with us tonight. Uh, we talked a little bit last not last week, two weeks ago with Paul Crook about working with a, a creative spouse as well. Your wife, Dr. Robbins, is a, a professor of English here at Tech. What is it like working alongside her on these short stories and these collections? Uh, before this evening started, Dorothy says, don't talk about it. Ha ha ha. It's nice. See, I made you. Just a little bit. We'll be in and out. I
0: promise. <laughs> All right. Uh, the way it works for us is that I'm the collecting editor, and she is the collection editor. Meaning that I go out and try to find the stuff. They bring it to her and say, Is it worthwhile? And usually she says, No. <laughs> or, or and
1: but it's fascinating because some of the
0: choices she makes are so vital uh, and appropriate. And outside my thinking realm, you know, uh, for the Louisiana Collection, I found this one I thought wonderful telling of a Christmas celebration on a plantation during slavery, as told by the mistress of the house. The 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 was telling all the wonderful things that she says, we can't use that. Well why not? It's prejudicial. It is a one sided thing. Well, what do we need? She says you've got to find the other side. so Fortunately, in the library we had a copy of Twelve Years a Slave. A wonderful film. And which was written by a former slave who was, you know, lit And he told the same story from the point of view of the slave. So those two stories reside, live in our collection side by side. And it's a I think
1: it's a very insightful thing that would not have happened without her intelligence as well as her sensitivities. Um, more to come from that partnership? Do you have anything else in the work? Not yet. yet. We tried uh, several that didn't go anywhere, like we
0: tried Texas. Can you believe that? We couldn't get anyone to publish it for us. So we have a collection from Texas that has not found its way into the homes of North America. Another story, too, about that. Yeah. Because we we found, Dorothy and I found the uh, collection, Christmas Stories from Louisiana, because we were at a, a conference down in New Orleans. So we found a book that was published by University of Mississippi Press. There was a new, uh, Christmas stories from Mississippi. And so we said, why not? Let's we approached her and said, we would love it. And we put this together. Well, lo and behold, after it was published, and you know, I found it at the hands of our friends here at the time, and she looked at us, she said, well, you lived here how long? And you lived here how long? And the question was, what do you think you know about it? And so we were challenged. What did we know about it? Very, very little so then we set out to, uh, to do something that we did know something The next one was Christmas on the Great Plains, which is our your home, mostly, and somewhat of mine, because I've lived there so long. And the third one was Christmas Stories from Georgia, my home. You got it, you got I it. Know. And that's when Dorothy and I had our first little hassle, because I wanted to put in a poem by Sydney Lanier. She says, we don't do poetry such a oh no it's not yes no it's not she <laughs> it's didn't not realize break the rule you know, right? she didn't realize that my doc my master's thesis at the university of georgia was on sydney Lanier <laughs> so <laughs> anyway that one did not go
1: um i don't hold her accountable though because it really wasn't to. you have you have very recently retired uh here and and from louisiana tech you served as director of the school of performing arts for quite a while served as a professor uh, even after leaving that position for your successor Mark Wynn. Um, what finally made you step back? There was a time. Uh,
0: I read somewhere that the average uh, tenure for any administrator is seven years. Uh, and I don't know if it's true that. That was just like a universal average. And I'd already been in position for 12. And uh, I felt as if if I had continued in that position, I would become a barrier to drugs, um, and, therefore, and I didn't think it was appropriate for this university to do Walmart in any way. And besides that, I really wanted to get back to writing, which had been put aside because of the other responsibilities. I didn't put writing aside entirely. I just simply realized I could not commit myself to being a full-time writer because I had another full time off guarantee a job. So I stepped aside. I haven't regretted it. I think Mark might have a cup on occasion, but... Uh, <laughs> I think Katie does more <laughs> than Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I admire what Mark is doing, um, not just here
1: at the but just during the rest of the year. He's still going to spend What is next for you? What what, what are you working on right now? That's interesting, because uh,
0: I am working on this finished, not the Tim McClain collection. And I'm now in Chapter 5 of a collection of stories for my four-year-old granddaughter. That's wonderful. Yes, that's wonderful. I don't know. I don't know. What's going to happen to me when she gets old, When she doesn't like Yeah. You know, when, well. when she turns her nose up and says, you know, I'm really interested to find that out. A lot of my how, how will you withstand the, the toughest grip? Yes. It's also the toughest writing because writing for a 12- or a 4-year-old is different than writing for you. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah or yeah. writing for oneself. Writing for yourself. Which is generally what the author does, yes. I think. An um, we're about to wrap up here, but I, I want to talk to you about something that you told me, and I, I swear it is probably the single of all the advice that you've given me. This is probably the one that has stuck with me the most. You told me once that you, you're you're not a playwright. You can't call yourself a playwright until you have had two plays produced. That's okay. You expounded on that. You said you can't call yourself anything until so you do it twice you got to do it twice. It's not just twice. It's been done twice by people who do not know you. Ah,
0: ah, but produced twice by, by, by people who don't know you, yes. That's even further. You cannot have
1: any kind of friendship involved. It's probably because the work is worthy of being done. It stands on its yes. own. That, that requirement of, of repetition, not only can you do it, but can, but can you do it again? Yes. That has stuck with me very, very much. The, the repetition. Of all the things in your life that you've done twice, What what are you? What do they put on the what do they put on the tombstone? What do they put on the memory? What do you what do you say? This is me. You know, that's a question that I will answer in about twenty five to thirty or forty. Ah, you and Mark both cheated. I asked him what his it legacy was too. He says, I don't, I don't I don't know. It's not for me to say. Well You have a direction though. You have a uh, you know the phrase limiting belief? Yes. I call it a directional belief. You have a directional belief, too. I believe I am, I believe I do, I believe I can, I believe I will. What is the directional belief for Kenneth Robbins here in the this next chapter? I strive to become as knowledgeable as I
0: can, so that I can become as wise as I possibly can. And wisdom is important only if you keep striving to learn more. It's
1: a pretty good answer. I am satisfied. 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 You satisfied? There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Meet with you, Dr. Kenneth so, I was going to mention this, but last spring
0: in April, I took a trip up to uh, DC and made a presentation at the American um, American Literature Association, and uh, my subject was the Greek, the Geek Theater. Huh. It's all about uh, one of our former students, uh, Queen Wing
1: who is dedicated to Geekdom. And so I think we should. Yeah, yeah he, he and I, he's definitely on my list. I, I, I've i got a whole crew here. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Uh, I appreciate you sitting in the chair. That's another episode of Me and the Geekdom. Ladies and gentlemen. What a fun conversation. I, I always have enjoyed these uh, summer series. I've enjoyed every single one of them, and they've just been a treat. I'm very much looking forward to my last one this year, and I can't wait to to grow and expand this series in the future. Thanks to everybody who's come out and been a part of the uh, series live, and thanks to everybody who's downloaded and listened to the interviews after the fact. Hope you enjoyed that one, too. We will be back next week. We're going to be talking with Josh Tolleson from the 318Now podcast. He interviewed me a while back for his show, but... He does an interesting thing. It's very localized podcasting. He focuses on events and organizations and folks right here in our backwoods in North Louisiana, where I'm conducting these shows from. So, we're going to talk to Josh next week about how he got into podcasting, how he does his show, and why he found it so fascinating to focus on the local. That's all coming up next week. You can find me on Twitter in the meantime at The Rogues Life. Follow me on my website, joelsharpton.com, or just come back here next week to Me and the Geek Pod. Com. Until next week, I've been me, Joel Sharpton. This week's Geek was Dr. Kenneth Robbins, and this has been me and the Geek. One, two, three, four. Woo! Me and the Geek is a proud member of the ProCast Network, a Procreate production. Procreate is a community of artists in film, music, the digital arts, and fine arts that helps them connect and collaborate on projects. You can find out more at teamprocreate.com. Also, be sure to check out one of our other great shows like Pod on Pod, a weekly review of a different podcast to help you find your new favorite show. Josh and Joel are your hosts as they walk through the wide world of podcasting from comedy to self-help. Josh and Joel listen to it all so you don't have to. With Rapid Insurance on Vodafone Business, we'll get a replacement phone to you within four hours. So if you should... Oh, no. Or even... Just get in touch and we'll... Your replacement phone, sir. Your phone replaced within four hours with our Rapid Insurance. Available on our new and limited data plans. The future is exciting. Ready? Vodafone Business.
0: Max download, upload speeds apply to data. Coverage may vary. Unlimited and rapid terms at Vodafone.co.uk. terms This is not just bread. This is a delicious M&S sliced loaf. Just one of our range that has been sliced from £1.15 to 65p. Enriched with vitamin D and fibre, it's great for packed lunches. This is not just value. This is M&S value. Subject to availability. Excludes franchise stores.